Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome to a slightly unusual edition of the Autosport podcast. We're not able to do the normal roundtable format thanks to the fact that I'm in Indianapolis for the Indianapolis 500. Practice got underway on Monday for what we should probably call the two weeks of May rather than the traditional month of May. My name is Ed Straw, the editor-in-chief of Autosport. Obviously the big talking point in this edition is the Spanish Grand Prix and that thrilling battle between Sebastian Vettel and Lewis Hamilton where we finally saw the first real bit of on-track engagement between the two in what's rapidly becoming an absolutely classic world championship battle. This is exactly what we wanted to see. So first of all, I'm going to speak to Glenn Freeman on the line. So Glenn, the Spanish Grand Prix was a a great race. Was that the point where the, the world championship battle really caught fire? I'm thinking we've seen upgrades, Ferrari and Mercedes still closely matched. We saw Vettel and Hamilton really going at it wheel to wheel on track for the first time this season. Yeah, it's exactly what we needed. It's exactly what we needed to see from uh, the first European race of the season when all the all the big upgrades arrived. I think we were all a little bit nervous on Friday when it looked like Mercedes had maybe taken a step or a bigger step with their upgrades. But by all accounts, Ferrari just had a bit of an off day, and the rest of the weekend seemed to prove that to be true. So, yeah, really, I think I breathed a sigh of relief really when we had a close qualifying session and a close race because, yeah, now it really feels like game on. The good thing is that means that the fun we had in the first four races isn't going to be confined to an exciting start to the season. Let's hope this is this is carrying on for the whole year now. 
And it's great that we're seeing these tiny margins continuing to make the difference, even just looking at qualifying, where it looked like Sebastian Vettel had the pace to take pole position and then he made the little mistake uh, in the final sector, he was under breaking into the final chicane, that left him half a tenth behind. So this is exactly what you want, where minuscule differences make the difference between first and second on the grid, between winning and losing. Yeah, you know, we want to see the best drivers going at it and, yeah, these tiny details making the differences because... That way, whoever wins the championship at the end of the year is the person who's, who's minimised those mistakes, who's not made those errors, who has got as close to achieving 100% of what they're capable of as many times as possible. If you have a dominant car, or maybe not the same sort of battle that we have this year, then I think, as Lewis Hamilton has said, probably Mercedes could get away with having days in the past where they weren't at it, and it would still be Rosberg and Hamilton fighting for the win over the last three years. You know, this time, both Ferrari and Mercedes and predominantly Hamilton and Vettel know that they can't afford the tiniest of slip-ups. You know, Vettel's lock-up really wasn't a big one into that chicane. We saw far bigger errors going on, even in that sector of the track, over the course of the weekend. He didn't miss the apex by much. But ultimately, it proved costly. He made up for it with a great start. But who knows how... Hamilton's race would have played out if he'd been starting on the dirty side of the track in second. You know, how bad could his start have been? Where would he have ended up? Would he have been in the incident that we saw behind them at the first corner? So, yeah, you can't underestimate what big difference these tiny margins can make. And that's fantastic. Now, that's what we want to see. We know that Hamilton and Vettel are two, two of the greats. They will go down as two of the greats long after they're gone. And right now, I think we are seeing them have to push themselves to the maximum. And they're pushing each other to the maximum. And that's fantastic. That's what that's what F one should be about. The great thing is that when margins are so close, and when you've got two great drivers knowing they can't leave anything on the table, it really ramps up the pressure to a an often unseen level of intensity because the drivers know it's so close. They know they can't afford to make mistakes, but at the same time, there's that thing in their mind saying, "Well, I've got to get the absolute maximum out of this." There's no comfort zone. There's no margin. And I guess we started to detect that in the race as well when Vettel and Hamilton really going at it, even in the first stint when Hamilton was trying to hang on. So drivers really know that they can't afford to make the errors and that in itself makes them more likely to make the errors, you could say, just because of the, the whole mental balancing act they have to play as well as trying to drive the car fast. Yeah, definitely. I'd probably argue that last year uh, in a Ferrari that wasn't really a match for the Mercedes, Vettel wouldn't have made that mistake in qualifying because he wouldn't have been thinking that pole position was on the cards. And I think you're right, that the first stint of the race, where actually not a lot happened between them, was still fascinating. Because, you know, you had a breathless Lewis Hamilton on the radio saying, I can't keep up with him. And his team having to find different ways to sort of urge him to do whatever he could to, to minimise that gap when they got to the first pit stops. And you, you could see, and I think two things have happened here. The 2017 cars in this regard have worked because they look faster. The drivers are on the edge driving them. But also the tyres, you know, I, I always tried to, I tried to get on board with the high degradation tyre era try to appreciate what it did to maybe mix up the racing now and again. But to see drivers going flat out again uh, this year, as, as, as we had on Sunday, it's brilliant. You know, that's, that's what you want. And, uh, you know, F1 fans should, should really make the most of this. We had, to, uh, we had to put up with some flashpoints over the last three years in the Mercedes, the era of Mercedes dominance. And now we've got a real fight again, the sort of thing that we've seen in the past. Schumacher-Hackinen-type rivalry perhaps developing here. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was absolutely brilliant. And I'd say, bring it on, let's have more of that. 
yeah, this is definitely the rivalry I've wanted to see for quite a long time. And the great thing is that we've had, I think, as you said, in the past, there have been flashpoints in the past few years. And then there have just been races that were just races and fairly predictable. But you could argue that five races into this year, all five of them have been significant flashpoints to a greater or lesser degree in that championship fight. We don't know how significant they will be in the grand scheme of things. But the fact that every single one of those five races is part of the story of this rivalry, of this championship, bodes really well, because there aren't that many seasons like this, so uh, so people should enjoy it. Uh, looking at the first stint of the race, obviously, as you say, Hamilton was trying to hang on. It, it was interesting, following the race, I was thinking, right, what's actually going to happen here? Is Ferrari going to take the initiative and try and take the undercut off the table? Is Hamilton going to be able to make the attack? Obviously, he was trying to clear enough of a gap so that he was able to make the undercut without getting involved with uh, Ricardo's Red Bull. And I think that was what dictated the timing of Vettel making the stop at the end of lap 14, because he did have what appeared to be just enough time to make the stop and to rejoin ahead of Ricardo. But the stop was just very fractionally slower than it, it should have been. And that appeared to make the difference between him being ahead of or behind Ricardo uh, when he when he emerged from the pits. Yeah, I, I can. I think Ferrari made the right call, and I think, as we'll get on to later, Mercedes made a, a correct call later on. Uh, I can see why they wanted to cover off losing out to the early stop. I didn't think there was too much wrong with the Ferrari stop. It was still it was still pretty quick, so maybe they just got their numbers a little bit wrong. Um, did Vettel lose that much time behind Ricardo? Probably not. I think he, he lost a little bit when he was stuck behind him in the final sector before making a very straightforward DRS pass. Um, I think that was the right call by Ferrari and I certainly think that Mercedes' reaction to it, whether Hamilton liked it or not, leaving him out at that point and trying to make something happen later in the race, which is the wording they kept using over the radio, was the correct call. And what I like about the way it played out strategically is this is the great thing about having two drivers fighting in rival teams. I think we've seen over the last couple of years, and I hate to keep going back to the Rosberg-Hamilton battle, but Mercedes, I think, backed away from letting anyone take strategic risks or doing something too different. So it meant that every race did kind of play out in the same way. We're not going to have that this year, and Spain was a perfect example of it, and, and that made it captivating. And yeah, I think it's another thing that bodes very well for the rest of the season. And it's very good that the strategy is working in an interesting way, shall we say, because I agree that it made perfect sense for Mercedes to leave Hamilton out. As soon as Vettel came out behind Ricardo, there was the possibility he'd be stuck behind Ricardo for a while. Certainly, you could argue that without the DRS zone having been extended on the main straight by 100 metres, that pass might might have taken him another lap or two to pull off because Spain can be difficult to, to pass at. So it's good that, that teams can be reactive to that. And it was logical for Mercedes to leave him out and then logical to extend the stints. And that's that's the fascinating thing when you get a race like this, when there is a point where you can make that direct and extreme trade-off where you say yeah actually you are going to lose a bit of time staying out on these tyres but there's going to be enough of a difference later on for it to, uh, for it to come back to you and of course this is when we started to get this landscape playing out in the race with with Bottas who was struggling to match the pace of the top two and sort of slowly drop back the fact that he was able to be there as a bit of a blocker for Mercedes for a few laps that cost Vettel I think around four seconds behind him made the land, the strategic landscape of this race kind of even more interesting as it started to play out. And that's when the race did start to edge a little bit back more towards Mercedes, having looked after the first stop, that Vettel and Ferrari might well be in a commanding position. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's not the role 
Bottas wanted to be playing, uh, coming off the back of his first win. It's hard to tell, really, if, if there was if there was damage on the car or not from the, the, the first corner incident. Um, he certainly had a scuffed left front tyre, but whether much much else is wrong with the car, we don't know. Maybe he's just having having another off day. But yeah, in, in the end, uh, that meant that he, he came into play. And he did a great job, actually. He, he kept his head and he certainly, I think he kept Vettel behind for as long as he could. You know, there was a clear, there was a big pace discrepancy there because obviously Bottas hadn't stopped. But I think we've seen in the past, sometimes you get a driver who's left out there to try and do that sort of job and they maybe keep the guy behind for sort of one DRS zone or something and then they're passed anywhere and they get called into the pits and, and they're rolling the races for con. But yeah, Bottas played the game there and um, as I say, he won't he won't want to do that every weekend, but he certainly made himself useful to Mercedes and you know you do need to keep your employer happy sometimes and that was that was really interesting to to watch. It was another nail biting moment in the race. We had plenty of those, so that's good because Spain doesn't always produce that sort of racing. Um, and yeah, I think you. I know you, Ed. You've talked in the past about how Bottas and Raikkonen could be the men that decide this world championship in a way, um, with maybe how they can interfere with the championship battle for their teammates. In this case, Bottas couldn't necessarily take points off of Vettel directly. But he certainly uh, played a big part in Hamilton being able to do that. So yeah, a good day all round for Mercedes. Lots of they made lots of things work, um, which, as we've said, with, with such fine margins, that's going to be crucial this year. Well, in the case of Bottas, it's all about a team using their strategic chess pieces as well as they can, and it just so happened that this was a this was a day where Bottas turned out to be more of a more of a pawn than a uh, than a more powerful uh, weapon. But there'll be other days when he's going to be uh, be leading the attack. As we saw in uh, in Sochi when he when he won, yeah. obviously with this strategy, Mercedes managed to eliminate some of the disadvantage of the medium tire. He was never going to be able to stay with Vettel because he closed up. He'd almost closed the gap completely while Vettel was behind Bottas. Hadn't he? He wasn't too far behind. It was back to roughly where the gap was before the first stops. So I think it was about two and a half seconds before the first stop, and it was maybe just under that by the time Vettel pulled that. Uh, that quite spectacular move on Bottas with the moving one way than the other, taking a little bit of grass, adding to a bit of a bit of the spectacle. And then, of course, the other key factor was the the virtual safety car being deployed for the uh, for Van Dorn's moment with with Massa, which created this opportunity. And it was interesting because always when the VSC comes out, you think, okay, are they going to pit? And it was I was looking at it and thinking, well, it's maybe a little bit early, but Mercedes. And a combination of Mercedes' ingenuity and the timing of the VSC meant that he was able to, it meant that Hamilton was able to come in, get onto the softs, not give Ferrari and Vettel a chance to react, and then get get very close and basically eliminate all of the advantage once they were both onto the the tyres they finished the race with. And that was quite a sharp bit of strategy from from Mercedes getting every little bit of time they gained four seconds from Bottas being in the way and they basically gained about four seconds from Vettel still being under VSC just at the start of that lap that proved to be his in-lap when he reacted yeah and and Vettel's maths post-race backs up your numbers there because he said in the cool down room before the podium I think he said to Ricardo he said I don't know what happened I was eight seconds ahead of him and then I come out the pit and I'm alongside him so like you say, four seconds uh, behind Bottas and four seconds with the virtual safety car. I was fascinated by this decision from Mercedes because um, we saw 
we saw the race control message flash up, well, I think, while Hamilton was in the pit entry saying VSC ending. Now, that doesn't mean you're green yet. That's that's the heads up that the green is coming. And I think he, he was still in the pit lane when we went back to full green flag conditions. So he didn't get a whole pit stop with Vettel at reduced speed, but he got a significant amount. And I do remember thinking at the time, why did they wait until the end? If they wanted to make a, a virtual safety car pit stop, do it when you know that it's going to be a full-time loss for Vettel. But then to hear Toto Wolff's explanation that it was deliberate because they didn't want Vettel to be able to respond and make his own stop, that does make perfect sense. So uh, I'm, I'm prepared to you know, absolutely uh, buy that claim from Mercedes that it was a deliberate ploy. And, and absolutely hats off to them. Uh, I think that's a that's a moment of a moment of genius, some uh, some good quick thinking. And yes, we don't we haven't always said that about Mercedes. We've not ever been totally convinced that if they end up in a full on strategic battle they can make the right calls from the pit wall. But that one was absolutely spot on. Yeah, I, I had a similar feeling to you when it was happening. I was thinking, well maybe that's a little bit late. But yeah, it worked an absolute treat and then it meant all of the pressure was on Vettel in that final stint. Mercedes reaped the reward of the timing of that pit stop. They reaped the reward of getting the medium out of the way. They reaped the reward of using Bottas as a bit of a spoiler to cancel out all of the advantage that Vettel and Ferrari seemed to have. And then it was just a case of the two drivers going toe-to-toe with Hamilton having the advantage of the being on the soft Pirellis compared to Vettel being on the mediums. Obviously, there was a bit of a question mark about whether the softs would last, although it always seemed like he was close enough to the end of the race for it not to be a, a major problem. But what did you make of the battle between Hamilton and Vettel? Obviously, there was one attempt by Hamilton around the outside into turn one with Vettel kind of forcing him a little bit wide. Uh, and then we saw the the relatively easy pass shortly after that. Yeah, it was great stuff, uh, particularly the first moment. Like you say, the actual pass for the win maybe wasn't as contested as we'd like in the end, uh, partially thanks to DRS, but going back to the first moment, when Vettel's come out of the pits, he's on the inside, slightly cold tyres, dirty part of the track, acute angle by being on the inside, he's always going to struggle to make the corner as normal. I think Hamilton was right to try and seize that moment and swoop around the outside, and Vettel did nothing wrong in the way he approached the corner, and probably... You know, probably didn't do all of he could to keep the Ferrari fully on the inside and give Hamilton some room. But at the same time, he didn't just run him into the runoff area. He just sort of edged him out. Lewis would have done the same in that situation. He wasn't very happy about it on the radio in the heat of the moment. But um, I think he accepted it afterwards. It's easier to accept when you have ended up winning the race. <laughs> but no, that was, that was great hard racing. I want to see more of that this year between the two of them. And yeah, it was a shame in the end. The longer DRS zone probably played a part in uh, Hamilton's pass being a little bit too easy. But as some people said to me on Twitter, actually, when I raised that point, they said, think of all the other moments in the race where the longer DRS zone helped cars get into position for us to have that fight in the first place. You know, what? maybe Vessel would have been stuck behind Bottas without the longer DRS zone. And who knows whether Hamilton would have been able to make a pass at all if it had been shorter. So... You can't have it all, and we certainly had a few flashpoints there and some good moments. So I think overall, good, hard, fair racing. They're right on the limit with each other, and long may that continue. I'm sure at some point it will go wrong, and then we'll see a real test of this sort of friendly rivalry that seems to be developing at the moment. I think Bottas has already said this year he can't see that lasting through the whole season. 
and I'd agree with him. I think when you're when you're fighting it out week after week after week, at some point the pressure's going to ramp up. Uh, maybe later in the season, and something's going to blow up between them. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that as well, to be honest. Well, this is what happens, isn't it? The pressure ramps up and ramps up and ramps up. We're only five races in, so we're only a quarter of the way into the season. So it's going to really, really build up, particularly when you're so close to your rival so often. It's almost inevitable there's going to be these huge talking points and flashpoints. So I think it's it's turning into an absolutely fantastic season. Obviously, looking at the strategic battle between the two, Ferrari were reduced to one car by Raikkonen's elimination after the contact with Verstappen in the first corner incident where basically Bottas, Verstappen and Raikkonen all ended up trying to go into turn one at the same point. Uh, The stewards took no action against that. Are you happy with that? I mean, it looked to me like a relatively standard three drivers all sort of converging in the same little bit of track without quite enough space to make it work. Yeah, I am. Absolutely happy with the decision and happy with all the stewards' decisions, actually. I think, um, they, you know, there were lots of incidents that in previous years we probably would have seen penalties for and we didn't see them this time. And I also think that Stoffel Van Dorn deserved a penalty for slamming into the side of Massa. Obviously, he paid a penalty immediately by retiring from the race. But, yeah, that one was a bit clumsy. But turn one, I started watching Formula 1 in 1989. And there's a line uh, at the first race of uh, that season, we had a very similar incident at the front of the field. I think Senna, Berger, and maybe Patrese were involved. On the season review, they say three into one doesn't go. And we see it time and time again. We saw it last year, I think, at Spa. And that's all this was. Bottas had nowhere to go on the inside. He tried to get up the kerb, which actually jumped him out a little bit to the outside towards Raikkonen. Raikkonen's pinched between two other cars. He can't go anywhere, so he tries to take a, a sort of middle racing line. Verstappen's doing the right thing, trying to swoop around the outside. You know, there is such a thing as a racing accident, and I'm glad that in Formula 1 that, that verdict seems to have come back. Nobody could do anything. It's unfortunate we lost two cars, although judging by Red Bull's pace, Verstappen wouldn't have had much to do other than maybe race Ricardo. Um, but it also creates opportunities for other teams. You know, isn't it great to see Force India, their reward for being best of the rest was a fourth and a fifth instead of a seventh and an eighth, so... Um, these things happen. It's part of the drama of the start of the race. And, yeah, I don't think anyone was at fault for that. And, uh, yeah, good work from the stewards. Let's have, let's hope that continues this year because I think so far, I don't know what you think, Ed, but I think the new approach has worked and we are seeing the drivers get a bit more racy. Yeah, very much so. The the new rule is that they only issue penalties if, uh, if one party involved is wholly or predominantly to blame. And I think they've executed that well. They're not going to let ridiculous moves get away with it but if you look at an accident or a collision or anything on track and you say yeah every driver involved was perfectly entitled to do what they did and it was just a combination of circumstances or a very small mistake that kind of that kind of thing that that causes it then you're absolutely right to let it go and that can only be good for the for the racing you did mention red bull there obviously after qualifying when verstappen was 0.557 seconds off of hamilton's pole time which is the closest a red bull's been this season it looked like Red Bull had made a good step, and you're thinking, well, yeah, the car's clearly made a step. When the Renault engine upgrade comes, whenever that's going to come, having been delayed a little bit, you're thinking, well, perhaps Red Bull might be close enough with a few more chassis gains to get into the fight. But then in the race, to see Ricardo 75, 76 seconds behind in third place at the end, that's that's pretty worrying for Red Bull. Or do we want to say that had Verstappen continued, given he was quite a big chunk faster than Ricardo? 
that gap would have been a little bit smaller. So do you think we saw a slightly distorted view of, of Red Bull on Sunday? Yeah, I mean, Red Bull continued to, uh, to disappoint me this season. I had such high hopes after the end of 2016 that they were going to be the team that kicked on and took this fight to Mercedes. We've been fortunate that even though Red Bull has failed, Ferrari have stepped up, so we're still getting a great fight at the front. Um, it's a tough one to judge. You know, clearly updates came to the car. This is a great. This circuit is a great test of the car. And aside from that one lap from Verstappen, you know, Red Bull spent the rest of the weekend. Even you know, after free practice, they weren't that impressive how they were going. So maybe it was a special lap from Verstappen. We don't know. Obviously, as I mentioned earlier. Ricardo had nobody to race. Um, it's such a such a lonely run to what became third place, thanks to other cars falling falling by the wayside. So he probably wouldn't have been pushing that hard. I know Christian Horner has said that Red Bull turned the engine down because they had nobody to race. I can believe that as well. So yeah, seventy five seconds or whatever it became probably isn't the absolute true picture. But I don't think they turned the engine down to the tune of 40 or 50 seconds over a race distance. You know, Red Bull don't look like they're in the fight still. And and that's a huge disappointment. They've got arguably two of the, the top talents in F1 who who should be part of this, you know, Hamilton Vettel fight, really. And their car and certainly their engine is letting them down. It, it is concerning that Renault are, Renault are delaying that upgrade. At the same time, they're delaying it for reliability reasons. So would Red Bull really like the update to arrive in Canada, bring two or three temps of improvement, and then the engine blows up and they don't get anything out of it? So that's a little bit unfortunate, but let's face it, um, I don't think the car's up to it either. You know, I'm not, I don't, you don't look at that Red Bull, and like Gary Anderson said to us in pre-season, you don't look at that car and think, well, stick a Mercedes engine in it and it's, it's going to be winning races and championships. So... There are a lot of question marks over Red Bull themselves. They can't totally point the finger at the engine this year. Yeah, and I think I'd agree that Red Bull's not going to be a factor for quite some time. You could argue late in the season they might come into it and be a bit of a bit of a spoiler and complicate the Ferrari Mercedes battle. But yeah, it's a bit it's a big gap to make up. So I think we're going to have to be waiting quite some time for Red Bull to be a serious factor. But anyway, well, thanks for your time, Glenn. It was a uh, a fascinating race to dissect, having strategic elements, wheel-to-wheel battle elements, and just some interesting car pace elements. So that was the the perfect balance, I guess, in that race. And, and long may it may it continue. So thanks, Glenn. No worries. Enjoy Indy. I will. Don't worry about that. And for my second guest today, I'm joined by Lawrence Barreto, who's not long back from Spain. Uh, Lawrence, there was an interesting story you had published on autosport.com in the plus section, the subscriber area, on Tuesday about how F1's made something of a breakthrough this year under the new ownership in terms of fan engagement, etc. Does it really feel like this is kind of a new sort of Formula One? Are there really tangible steps being made in that direction, do you feel? I definitely feel that is the case, having just got back from Spain, where um, Formula One or Liberty Media have just introduced a new series of fan initiatives during the Grand Prix weekend. You can really feel this buzz around the place. As I've been my experience of the place in the past, is that fans are quite um, enthusiastic about Formula One, but there was just something different this year. They kind of, they seem to uh, be enjoying the facilities and the activities that are being put on um, for them. But that's just one example, or the latest example rather, of what Liberty Media and F1 as a whole is starting to do. You've got all sorts, from McLaren launching this competition to let someone in their simulator, giving them a job basically for a year. Whereas beforehand, the simulator used to be 
one of the team's most closely guarded secrets. So I think there are lots of examples of how Formula One is trying and harder with the fans. My favourite probably is um, Williams who are letting a couple of fans sleep in the garage the night before the British Grand Prix this year um, as part of the competition. They managed to speak to Lipsy Media, he thought it was a great idea. It was approved within a few weeks, and whereas in the Bernie Eccleston era, that, was all, that would have been something that would have been known and impossible. Now, I have one question about that competition, which is a, an extraordinary and... Uh, very unusual competition prize, but obviously overnight the garage is part firm conditions. You have the netting over the car. Will those sleeping in the garage also be under part firm conditions? Uh, no, I don't think they'll have a mosquito net uh, or, or a subliving um, put on top of them. But obviously they won't be allowed to roam around the garage, but they'll still be in a place where no one else has ever been able to, um, to spend the night, basically. Uh, they'll have a comfy bed, they'll have all the facilities that they would do in a, in a hotel room. Well, it's an interesting one. Let's hope that Williams don't have uh, big problems there and have to break the curfew. That could lead to a rather bad night's sleep for the for the winners. Obviously, the other thing we saw is when Kimi Raikkonen uh, retired from the race after the first corner contact, the the three into one attempt with Bottas, Raikkonen, and Verstappen obviously led to suspension damage. But we saw this uh, the child in the stand who was obviously a Kimi fan in tears, and then later on we saw him brought over to to the Ferrari motorhome to to meet Kimi. I mean, obviously, you could look at something like this as a bit of a an easy, easy, cheap win. But actually, I think it's it's symptomatic of something quite different. Actually, seeing and understanding the need to, where possible, bring fans in a bit more and create sort of some nice human stories rather than just this old school thing of oh, people like Formula One because it's completely elite and completely isolated and you can't get into it and it's aspirational. It's a bit more interactive, I guess, would be the word. Exactly. And it's also something that it's not just the individuals involved in that can enjoy that, but just watching it on the outside. It's just a it's just a great human story. And I imagine that that was uh, would have put a smile on plenty of people's faces just as much as seeing some of the racing. So it's nice to see see that human side. And it's it's really important for F1 to understand that the world has changed a lot. We have a lot of talk about digital and extra content that people want, etc, etc, etc. But for me, the key is that you can't just be this standoffish thing anymore that everyone aspires to. It's got to be something that's a little bit more tangible, a little bit more real for people. And those human stories are part of that, making it more real. And I think the fact that that Formula One group actually understands the need for that, which I think we can be absolutely certain under the previous regime, not a chance would that have been something that, that had happened. The fact that they get that bodes quite well for the future. Because I've been 
waiting to see what was going to happen because everyone basically has used the Liberty Media acquiring the commercial rights to Formula One as this panacea whereby everything's going to be fixed, the payments are going to be fixed, it's going to be brilliant for fans, etc., etc., etc. But I've been waiting for things to actually happen, and it's quite nice that these little small things, it's not enough, but these little small steps, the, the low-hanging fruit, the easy wins, are actually happening. Definitely, and they're doing them pretty quickly as well. It's not like they've hung around um, for a long time, and they're making use of what they've already got. And like you said, they're not spending a load of money uh, yet. The fan initiatives that they used uh, when introduced this, this weekend just gone insane, where activities that they've done in, in bits across, you know, across the last few years, but they've just brought the whole thing together so it works as a proper package for fans, and what, and what they've got is just a better offering than what fans would have had in the past. Yeah, I think that's only going to be good for the fans and good for the interest in the sport. I think we can all agree on that. Uh, looking elsewhere, we've already had a, a long chat with, with Glenn Freeman about the, the goings-on at the front of the race. Obviously, there are a few other talking points down the order. McLaren was quite a big deal. Fernando Alonso qualifying seventh, which was pretty extraordinary, given how, how poor the McLaren looked, not just in terms of its engine package, but also chassis-wise during the uh, during the Barcelona test. The fact that Alonso was able to haul it that high up is very encouraging. So are, are there signs and reasons for a bit of optimism in, in McLaren and with Honda for the first time? Or is that just a little bit of a, a freak result with Alonso getting 100% out of what he had and maybe some of the others, Renault, for example, underachieving a little? I think um, I think it's a mixture of both. I think there's, there's definitely some positive elements to take from this weekend for McLaren Honda, aside from the failures. Uh, that Honda had again um, here, both that hit both Alonso and uh, Duffel Van Dorn. The performance side of things was an improvement. They bought a new uh, update, which is believed to have bought an extra 10 brake horsepower. I know they're not massive figures, and I think Fernando said at some point at the weekend that they're still 50 brake horsepower behind. But still, it's still an improvement, and I think that's what Honda has got to, and McLaren together have got to build on, that there are these little steps that they're making. Um, again, it's only one race. And it's difficult to tell, but I was just looking at the stats um, earlier um, and looking at like, the average uh, pace of the weekend and the super time. And McLaren's was actually up there in, in, in fourth place, and that's the highest that they've been uh, all year. Again, it's just a case study of one race, but it still shows that McLaren is, and McLaren Honda rather, uh, are making progress. Having said that, they're still at the bottom of the Constructors' Championship, obviously, with Sauber scoring the points through Pascal Verlein's eighth place. Now, the Sauber is not a quick car, so. Where did that come from? Obviously, it was a very well-executed race from Pascal Verlein, but the fact he was able to finish seventh on the road, which then became eighth place after the, the penalty, is, is pretty remarkable. I think on a podcast not so long ago, I said there's every chance Sauber will go through the season without scoring any points. I certainly didn't see them being able to score in Spain, and the fact they had Ericsson not far off the points as well is, is quite positive for them, surely. Well, I think the first thing is that Sauber just showed that if you make sure you do everything right and you stick to your plan and you take advantage when um, others are struggling, this is exactly what you what you can get. You can get a points uh, finish. And you're right, Sauber came into the weekend not even hope, you know, not even expecting points. Uh, they really struggled in Russia. They couldn't even bring their full update package to Spain. They had to split it into two, so the second half will come in Monaco. And after Friday, the drivers were at a loss. They didn't really know what was going on. They couldn't understand it. Then they turned around on Saturday and qualifying some turn of pace. The feeling inside the team was, well, we don't quite know what's happened because we've not done anything drastically different. And Sunday was more of the same. It was another, it was more um, another strong pace or another strong showing. So, Sauber, being honest, don't really know what turned this around. 
So they just did what they could do. Uh, they made use of their uh, reasonably new uh, race strategist um, to take a unique one-stop, and, and they made it work. Which is positive for them. I mean, that's what you need to do if you're a team like that. You need to deliver absolutely the best you can, and then when others underachieve, you come up with a good result. I guess it's a similar story, although they're a much more competitive team with Force India, who had a fantastic result with fourth and fifth place. And throughout the season, you look at that team, and it's always got the best out of what it's got and been able to pick up extra points, I guess, when others when others have faltered. And for, I mean, Force India, I think they've got 53 points this year, and last year, at the same point, they had 14. So, And I remember speaking to Mark after the race, and he said, well, our car, was, our car was stronger last year, arguably, than it was this year. So it just shows that operationally, um, as you said, if you take advantage um, of, of the track and, and you're reliable, because um, I finished every single race with both cars this season, uh, that's, that's what you can do. You can pick up the points. And we also saw a little bit of unpredictability from Renault, didn't we? Nico Hülkenberg finished the race in sixth, but they seemed to struggle in qualifying. It didn't look like it was going to be a great weekend for Renault. It seemed to be quite sensitive to track temperature and getting the tyres to work. The car seems to be a little bit sensitive to crosswinds as well, which maybe suggests it's a little bit critical aero-wise. But that's interesting, isn't it, that we're seeing such a close battle in that middle pack. We're, we're seeing these small differences and it can make a massive difference in terms of your position. And I think that's a really good thing because it just means that if you do a good job and you perform on the weekends, you can you can get a result or you can get some reward for it. Um, you used Renault as an example. I think Cyril Abisal admitted that Renault perhaps engineered a car that's a bit more sensitive to ambient conditions. And, and this weekend, that, that was evident. Um, but uh, Nico Hulkenberg is another example of having settled into Renault reasonably quickly. He's taken pretty much every opportunity that he's had in the last three races. It was strange that Renault were stronger in the race here than in qualifying, so that's the complete opposite to what's been the case for the first four races. And Renault admitted that it was strange, and they're not quite sure why that's the case. Um, but we've got to keep remembering this is a new generation's car um, in a new era, aero-wise. And it's going to take the teams some time uh, to understand the package they've got, but also the uh, relentless rate of development that we're going to be seeing across, across the season. Yeah, it certainly makes it interesting. And it's going to be fascinating to see which teams assert themselves in that midfield battle, because you would expect this is going to happen as the season progresses. As more and more updates come down, we'll see a more established order created. And I've been quite impressed with Renault overall, actually. They didn't look brilliant pre-season, but I think it's been very much the kind of step they needed to make from last year, which is obviously a difficult year, to this year. The one thing that surprises me a bit there is the relative performance of the drivers. It doesn't surprise me to see Nico Hülkenberg doing so well. I rate Nico extraordinarily highly. I think he's a fantastic driver, and I think over the past few years, he's not always done himself justice actually, with his overall performance level. I think he's somebody who's got a huge amount of pace. I expected him to be the stronger driver in Renault, but Julian Palmer isn't a mug, and his season's been pretty horrible. I mean, other than, I guess, qualifying in Bahrain, where he made Q3, it's been a horrendous season for him, and that's not just a question of a driver who's not very good struggling. There's more to it than that, isn't it? Because he's not that far behind Hülkenberg in terms of his ability, certainly. Tough year uh, for Julian Palmer. It's echoing um, his season last year when he was struggling. He doesn't quite know what is going wrong, and I guess that is always got to be of the greatest, greatest concern um, because there isn't really a clear path forward of how to how to take steps. It must be even harder for him to accept, given 
Nico's new into the team and he's delivering. I know that you said that he's an exceptional driver and you'd expect exceptional drivers to deliver um, or get the most out of the package. Um, but for Julian, he's had plenty of time now with this team at, at Endstone uh, to settle in. It must have been much harder for him. There's already uh, some rumblings about um, his future. Uh, similar people have said that he's going to work with Julian to, to try and get on top of this. Um, And just before we let you go, Lawrence, I just wanted to ask you about the, in the F1 paddock, perception of Alonso's Indianapolis 500 quest. Um, as you might hear from the sound in the background, there's some two-seaters circulating here at Indy, uh, where I am for, for two weeks. Obviously, there's a lot of excitement around Alonso, but what's the F1 paddock making of this whole thing? Is there a lot of interest in what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks? Oh, there's huge interest. Um, everyone is talking about it, whether you're, you know, you're having breakfast or you're just in the media centre having a chat. Everyone is keen to know what uh, what Fernando can do uh, while he's over there. Um, it's, it's a really nice story, um, I think, for Formula One because Fernando is obviously one of the one of the sport's great drivers, and he's been struggling over the last couple of years. And I think people are just quite excited to see whether whether he's still got it, I guess, whether he's still in talent wise, whether he can just turn it on when he gets to Indy. So I think it, it's definitely captured the imagination of everyone in the Formula One paddock, and I think yeah very much so and i think over this side of uh, of the pond the interest in alonso is extraordinary there's camera crews following him around everywhere is every move so it's going to be very interesting to see how he gets on through this week ahead of qualifying at the the weekend but he certainly had no shortage of advice it was interesting you might be able to hear in the background every now and again a, a car going past that's the two-seater which looks like it's got mario andretti practicing in it and uh Fernando was asked about what advice he'd had from Mario and uh, he said that, that Mario was, was putting a lot of effort into his preparation for the, uh, the two-seater ride and, uh, and Fernando said, if I was one of the guests, I would be worried because he will push to the limit in that car. So it's good to see the, uh, the kind of union of, uh, of former world champions and IndyCar racers now, I guess, they're both in that club now, is, uh, is going strong. So it's, it's going to be a fascinating story. Uh, but anyway, Lawrence, obviously you'll be in uh, Monaco uh, the weekend after this to follow progress over there uh, and I'll be in Indy so it'll be fascinating to to see what happens both for the Alonso Lewis McLaren with Jensen Button coming back and for Alonso's Indy adventure so thanks for joining me and I'm sure we'll hear from you uh, on the podcast very soon thanks Lawrence obviously Autosport will bring you plenty of coverage of goings on here at Indy and in the world of Formula 1 so check out Autosport.com Autosport magazine is out every Thursday subscribe to this podcast via iTunes and various other podcast suppliers Keep an eye out on our Facebook page for Facebook Live content as well. Hopefully we'll have some special Indianapolis 500 podcasts coming up for you over the next couple of weeks. So thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. By now, you know that sound. It's the sound of the Home Depot. But what about that sound? You're listening to a set of GE appliances, complete with all you need to keep food fresh, dishes clean, and everything else stress-free. Making this the sound of savings on top brand appliances. The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Get up to 25% off select GE appliances right now. Offer valid January 5th through January 25th, 2023. U.S. only. See store or online for details. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.